Hey, before we get rocking and rolling in the garage, it's not a it's not a garage. I was trying to do a garage band kind of thing. Uh, whatever. Uh, I want to remind you that submission deadline for issue three of the audio magazine has been extended to the end of the year, December 31st. The theme is heroes. Do with that what you will. Essays must be no more than 2,000 words. Bear in mind, it's an audio essay, so pay attention to how the words tumble out of your mouth. Email your submissions with heroes in the subject line to creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com. And I pay writers, too. Yeah. You heard me say it, that burrito money. Dig it. I'm a voguer, sure. You know, and I do that for myself, but I don't walk a ball. And so I'm not really, I'm not ballroom, but I'm definitely of it. Um, but Which is ironically the perfect space to write a book about it because you're not so close that you can't tell the truth, you know? Oh, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara, at Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Ricky Tucker is here to talk about his new book, and the category is Inside New York's Vogue House and Ballroom Community. It's published by Beacon Press. That's two weeks in a row of a Beacon Press book. Can I get some love, Beacon Press? Some digital fist bumps? Give me a retweet over here. This conversation was the first ever live CNF Pod event from this past weekend, depending on when you're listening to this. Part of Goucher College's MFA in Creative Nonfiction uh, is called the Nonfiction Sessions. It was it was great. It was a pretty vibrant event. Tons of really cool panels from all sorts of just uh, whip smart, talented badass people in the CNF and community. It's pretty wild. I need to thank episode 8 CNF pod alum, my good pal Maggie Messett, for inviting me to do this, as well as my second semester Goucher mentor, Leslie Rubinkowski. If you like the life and times of Elvis impersonators, she's got a great book about it. Go check it out. <laughs> I think it's called Impersonating Elvis. Hold on, I'm going to Google that right now. Because wouldn't that just be embarrassing that I would not know the title of her book. One of my big things when I was doing my MFA, knowing full well that they were going to be, all my mentors are going to be reading all of my garbage. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make sure I at least read their work. At least if they have multiple books, I was just at least one, one book. And uh, so in any case, Leslie's book, it was, it is impersonating Elvis. So there, I did remember it right. So it was important to me to, re to read their work because it was just an unfair balance of ability and talent for them to give me as much attention as I was uh, a needy, needy person. And I was like, well, at least I can do is read Kevin Corain, Tom French, Dick Todd and Leslie's work. So I did. Anyway, here's a little bit about Ricky Tucker, pulling from his website. Ricky Tucker is a North Carolina native storyteller, SIS teacher, and art critic. His work explores the imprints of art and memory on narrative and the absurdity of most fleeting moments. 
He is the former editor of 12th Street Journal and has contributed to Big Red and Shiny, The Paris Review, The Tenth Magazine, and Lambda Literary, Literary, Lambda Literary. Hmm. and has performed for reading series including The Moth, ooh, The Moth Grand Slam, Sister Spit, Born Free, and Spark London, among others. Pretty, pretty great, pretty great. Hey, support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent CNF faculty include Random Billings Noble, Jeremy Jones, and Sarah Einstein. There's also fiction and poetry tracks, with recent faculty there being Ashley Bryant Phillips and Jacinta Townsend, as well as Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sipple. No matter your discipline, man, if you're looking to up your craft or learn a new one, consider West Virginia Wesleyan right in the heart of Appalachia. Go to mfa.wvwc.edu for more information and dates of enrollment. And you can always keep the conversation going on social media, at CNFPod on Twitter, and at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. Head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly Up to 11 newsletter, book recommendations, book raffles, cool articles, exclusive happy hour, writing prompts, 11 cool things. Who's got it better than us? First of the month, no spam. Can't beat it. All right. You ready for Ricky? Me too. Nice. Well, since uh, yeah, since we're maybe a little bit shorter on time here, Ricky, we can get rocking and rolling and get right into this thing. And uh, I wanted to start this conversation off before we dive into your wonderful new book that I wanted to get a, ask you if it's true that you played a prank on your teacher when you were in elementary school by dusting her chair with chalk on April Fool's Day. That, how do you know that? That's so that's hilarious. Yeah, Miss Davis. Yeah. Um, it was April Fool's Day. I was doing a string of pranks. Like my grandma came in from England and I had like I watched too much Home Alone. And I put like a bucket of like water on like the, the door on top of the door. So when she opened it, it fell. Tried it at school. <laughs> I d- took the I took the the chalk uh erasers and like dust the dusters and like wiped them all over her chair. And so there was a print on her butt the entire day. Um, but it backfired because she thought I was trying to steal her purse. So, like, so I learned, I learned, like, the hard way not to play pranks on people. How did you know that? Uh, well, I read, I read that essay of yours about why I hate purses. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It linked the purse link. There you go. Okay. Nice. And now give me a sense and tell me about your experience with Cragfast. Maybe you can define that for people and what that was like. Yeah, my friend Andy took me. So I have a connection to England. I did grad school there and I was born there and I have some family that stayed there for a long time. So my friend Andy was like, okay, we'll take you to like see Ipswich where you were born and then we'll go to Wales at some point. And we went to Wales and we went to the mountain called Snowdoan. And I'm afraid of heights, but I've climbed mountains. I'm from North Carolina. I've camped and climbed more mountains than any gay man ever should. And I went there thinking I'd be fine. And then we got to a certain point of elevation and I just thought, 
like I can't move anymore. Like I can't go up anymore. My body just is telling me it's all wrong. And then um, I had to sit down. I felt woozy and I literally crawled on all fours to reach the summit, which at the summit of the mountain was like a, a gift shop and a cafe. So that was weird too. It was like, I climbed, I like crawled my way to just like this capitalistic venture, which was hilarious. My, yeah. Yes. Crack fast. And so we, got, we back, got back down to the base of the mountain and the woman, um, told us the camp woman told us that like people have that condition all the time. They think they're fine and they get to the mountain and they can't budge anymore. And they feel like they're just going to tip over and it's called crack fast. So I learned a new word that day. Nice. So then you, you reach the summit and then you're like, it looks like you have crack fast. Here's a croissant. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a croissant and um, a Welsh keychain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To commemorate this moment. Your, your, your trauma. Yeah. Totally. Now, something I always love diving into uh, on this show is getting a sense of how we get the writer bug. It, it, given that this this line of work, to quote my good friend Glenn Stout, is nothing about this line of work makes sense. So, and we do it anyway. So, I was wondering, maybe you can speak to how you got the writerly bug, uh, you know, early on, and then started to cultivate that. Um, my great, I grew up with my great grandmother, um, who was an educator and studied, studied, um, early childhood development and Montessori method. She was one of those folks who were black in the twenties and thirties and twenties to fifties, actually, like when she was studying and went to France for a while and studied Montessori and stuff. So when she came back to the States and retired and went back down to North Carolina to teach, she was doing a lot of, um, tutoring for kids in the neighborhood and teaching them phonics and giving them agency as, edu- um, as, as learners. Um, and she would always do this thing. I mean, she was kind of a mean woman. So she would do this thing where she was like, you know, like, God damn it. The G is silent. And like cuss a poor little child out, like, and then be like, Ricky, come in here and, and show them how to do it. And so then I would have to read, you know, like effortlessly and then be embarrassed and then have to see them in school the next day and be like, sorry, my grandma's mean, you know, like, um, but uh, what that did was let me know that a, like a, I have like a capacity for this stuff, like for reading and writing and, um, and that teaching and, is just as important to me. Um, so they're intrinsically linked. But when I was little, I would like get assignments. Actually, in Miss Davis's class, the same woman I tortured on April Fool's Day, she had a prompt like, just write about your favorite toy. And I wrote about this toy named Bobo, who like it was a stuffed bear that my little sister had. And when I read, it's something, I said something about like smoky eyes or something like that. And really he had like marbles for eyes. So it wasn't that dramatic, but like, but, you know, I loved Bobo, right? And so um, when I finished reading, everybody was staring at me. And then this kid, Siler Sutherland, next to me goes, that was really good. And I was embarrassed at the time, but that moment stayed with me. And I realized that, like, I have a capacity to make people feel things just by jotting something down. And I barely even tried at that point. Um, so, so, yeah, just seeing people's reaction and also wanting to be of service with what I do. I don't think of artistry as, like, just the muse is talking to you. It's like a, an act of service and it's a way to learn. And I just want to be of service. Right. And that's, it's so important when you, to have that, that moment when you're, when you're younger, when you have something, something to say, and then it does resonate with, you know, with your, with your peers or your audience. And at that, at that moment when your friends said, you know, Oh, that, that was good. You know, was there someone, someone else in your orbit at the time who, who was who saw that kernel in you and started to cultivate that and nourish that in you so you could maybe you know gain some altitude with it there have been people along the way i mean i'm really sort of a a, a loner 
uh, in life, but I have a lot of people who love and support me. And so I'm learning as an adult to take advantage of that or like to, to say yes to their help. But um, there are people being so, as much of a loner as I am there when people have play that position of mentor or just like in, encouraging me, I, it stays with me. And Mr. Tom's my elementary, my kindergarten teacher in elementary school. He said uh, he always used to call me Dr. Ricky Tucker, MD. Like I'm not a doctor. Right. But like when you call a five-year-old that, that like sticks out, you know, and every time he would say it. Um, so he was really pivotal in that. And then a college professor, I turned in one final paper right before I dropped out of that school. And he said, whatever you do, keep doing this, you know? Um, so just little, you just pay attention to those and stop being embarrassed by what you're meant to do. And at what point do you realize that it's something that you might want to take on as a vocation? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Starting, starting higher education and needing to pay bills. Is that, is that, is that an okay answer? Yeah. It's an okay one, but man, writing the pay bills. I don't know. That's a, that, that's a tough one. That's, a, <laughs> that's tough sledding. It's the long road to take for sure. <laughs> But I think of it as a trade too, and all my day jobs yeah. are writing, and I feel very fortunate in that. But like, it's not impossible. You just have to have enough examples of what writing is around you, and college does that for you a lot. Um, but um, yeah, you just have to have a, sort of an imagination, you know. Yeah. But th- that 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 being said, I am not rich at all, you know. <laughs> right. This 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 have I you know is it a career? It's still kind of TBD every day. Oh, every day. Out of it, yeah. yeah TV day to the day we die. Seriously, <laughs> he was a writer. He not is one, but he was one. Yeah, on my gravestone, they'll say he was a writer. Yeah, has been determined at that point. So, um, you know, getting getting to that that sense that it is something that is always ever evolving, and I, I I often I often lean on sport metaphor as a way for at least me to understand what it means to uh, for for hard work and rigor. You know whether it be basket. I just read the the Giannis uh, biography on um, you know M- you know two time MVP. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name right now, but it's a multisyllabic uh, Greek surname. And uh, and just throughout that book, he's always talking about taking those extra shots, taking the free throws, working, working, working. And and so when something is physical, we can really see what hard work is. It translates. You know, you run, you run further, you run faster, you get more endurance and you build up that muscle a bit more with writing in the arts. It can be a little bit more nebulous and hard to grab onto. So I wonder for you, Ricky, you know, how do you define hard work and rigor when it comes to writing and, uh, you know, doing this thing that we do? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I feel like I know when I haven't written enough you know, and I put myself in enough situations where someone like I'm being held accountable and there's a deadline. So that's the deadline is, is really um, motivating. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I just, again, it's, I think New York was really pivotal for me in that. I mean, I wrote a little bit when I lived in Boston for about 10 years, but then I moved here and went to the new school. And then I just saw like a lot of people that were doing stuff that I thought was cool. And the you know, the classes that I ended up taking at the new school were really, really cool and sort of inspired the book too. So I, the first three classes I took were with these heavyweight titans of publishing and, and artistry. And um, I took a class called Old Weird America with Grill Marcus um, that was about the history of sort of Bob Dylan and how he co-ops certain cultures, but then also how he's amazing. So I wanted to sort of dissect that. And so that was really cool. So I know that art criticism is a is a lane that I should be in, um, hence the book. But then Vogology was a course that I took too about the ballroom scene and how you um, 
uh, it's, it was theory based, but then also practice. So it was, we learned how to Vogue, but we learned about the community too. Um, and then I took a trans genre class with the uh, New York writer, Lynn Tillman, and she's a personal friend of mine now and became my thesis advisor. So I just, and then I worked with John Reed, who's sort of a big New York um, author too. So like, I think just being in spaces where you like the people and then the opportunities just sort of come in and you just, if you're interested in it, do that, you know, stay interested. So, I mean, I've been working a lot, but it hasn't really felt like work. As a matter of fact, I feel guilty for not working as hard as I should in, <laughs> my, in my mind, but that's all of our own insecurities. That's our, everyone's got that problem. Oh, for, yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, getting, um, you know, sometimes with, there's a lot of things with whether it be you know physical or or something more ethereal but it's like there are certain things that we do in practice that nobody sees and that if you're a baseball player there might be hitting balls off the tee in the basement for you know, no one's seeing that but it's repetitions that go into the tank and make you better a better hitter uh, what kind of maybe writing or art do you consume or practice that nobody else sees but it does put fuel in the reservoir uh, in your reservoir to to do to do what it is you do and get better it is at, at what it is you do well what's really cool is a part of a, a good part of my research is just watching youtube videos mm-hmm. like so that is like a hidden gem in my, uh, my practice and then it really does affect my writing because a lot of it is just me explaining through my lens what happened in media um i'm working on a second book right now called or loosely called, um, but they did do that on television, Queer Dispatches in the Golden Age of Media. So it's about how like shows like Designing Women, my favorite show, how like I've been waiting for an opportunity to just write a whole chapter about Designing Women in, in something, you know, and write about all of these incredible women and like how the show was really progressive and stuff, but how that book um, or how that show spoke to me in queer codes when I was a kid, you know? So really it's just incorporating the things that I'm obsessed with um, and and applying sort of critical theory to them. So to that point, it is strengthening muscles watching these shows and using a critical lens, but it also feels effortless because that's just how I I watch TV. And then writing that way feels a little bit more effortless too. Um, so, So yeah, it's a lot more fun. I mean, you know, editing is fun to me at this point, that writing is mostly that. So once you do like what, everyone calls what the, the page barf you know like you just <laughs> yeah right just sort of throw yeah. it all down the fun of it now the the I, I teach a class at the new school reading for writers and I told my students today that like you know like don't if you do a workshop don't give up on this piece like don't get all these notes from all of us and then just be like okay I'm going to throw it in a pile in the in the corner and then when I graduate I'm going to throw that pile away right like <laughs> I've done that too right but like don't do that like because really you haven't written anything you just sort of barfed on a page what you should be doing is just combing and combing until it's painful and then you're still not done and then all of a sudden it's beautiful and you have something you know and it's never really done but like it's it's the architecture of editing and so um so rereading stuff over and over again used to be excruciating but now it's just fun yeah, and I think that underscores a great point that a, a lot of people, especially newer writers, or uh, um, you know, people who might not be quite as experienced, ultimately what what we need to get comfortable with is bad writing over and over and over again. Because once we get comfortable with bad stuff and doing that over and over again, good stuff has no choice but to come out eventually. But oftentimes people are embarrassed uh, about the the bad writing they're doing or the bad writing they're unwilling to do because they have a perfect vision of what it looks like in their head and then it starts coming out in the page like 
this shit doesn't look good at all. I'm just going to, I'm either going to start something new or quit altogether. So maybe. <laughs> I'm going to look into a new career right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, totally. And I, yeah, it's that, I think that might be the most apt sort of like one-on-one to one with your athletic, like sort of um, metaphor. It's just like, yeah, just keep, keep going, keep going. Something's going to happen. Don't give up because it's always garbage the first go round. Oh yeah, oh, and speaking from experience, it's usually garbage through twenty and thirty and forty drafts of of a rewrite. And uh, I know I'm happy to say that it often takes me that that often to rewrite either whether it be an essay or a book. And uh, the great Dinty W. Moore of the editor of Brevity, he talked about that openly when he was on the show a few years ago about writing you know upwards of a few dozen drafts of something, and that was really great because I think a lot of us think that maybe it just it just falls out great or it only takes a few revisions and then here's these things that we deeply admire and it came out so nice but really it takes just t- like you said so much editing and revision and then you just got to kind of sit with that yeah 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 and also like stop being embarrassed in front of only yourself right <laughs> like you're like oh this is horrible it's like okay you're just looking at it don't show it to someone until it's not so horrible like you know like get over it just go yeah, but we gotta gram that shit. Yeah, put your first. Well, I have this. Like, I I feel like the first paragraph of anything is always garbage. Like you get to the second part and you're like, oh, we've actually landed. And the first yeah. part is some impressionistic like poem that you thought was appropriate for this nonfiction essay. So like, why why not like just like yeah, post that garbage one just to let everybody know that we're all garbage at first. Right. First paragraph goes up. That's a good idea. I'm going to start doing that. Give me a sense of what you thought a, a successful writer looked like to you. Maybe when you were 20 and then maybe as you crested 30, you know, how did that change and what did it look like early and how, how, how has it manifested itself uh, to this day? Um, I'm still kind of figuring it out, but I do know that the models were a book and a class, right? Like teaching a book and I mean, <laughs> having a book and teaching a class. Um, but now I know it's so many more things than that. Like, you know, now that this book is coming out, I've started doing like, you know, guest lectures, which is really cool. I did one at at Bennington last month and that was great. I also write copy. So I I was the the in-house senior copywriter for the new school um, for about five or six years. Um, And so that, you know, I'm a nonfiction writer and that was a very creative nonfiction sort of job, you know. Um, So the tradesman sort of aspect of writing, people just completely forget about, you know. And although I have a capacity for marketing, I don't necessarily want to do it for the rest of my life. So it's nice to be able to do it for like 20 hours a week and then go teach a class and then be here with you today. Like it's 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 a lot more than just like a flat thing. Like it's not everyone isn't meant to be Stephen King. Yeah, well, that, that's great to hear. And I think it, it gives people uh, it makes them feel less alone that, say, their writing isn't the the thing that is solely supporting them, and that whether that be a a day job that's anywhere from thirty to forty hours a week, and you you find these little nooks and crannies in your schedule to get some writing done, or you're cobbling together several freelancey things that you don't post to Twitter, but it's something that helps pay the bills, so you can do some of the more artistic things that you're proud of that you are certainly going to gram about and put on and put on Twitter. So it's really good to hear you just you know say that because yeah we're often caught looking over our shoulders and comparing ourselves to other people and we're wondering like how do, how are they how are they doing that i want to be doing that but i I don't, I don't see them you know writing these you know winners and losers from the daytona 500 but <laughs> you know so it's it's good to hear you talk like that 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, writing is so many different things. I mean, I've written a pilot. I've been paid to write a pilot for a production company for television. It did, never got picked up, but I got paid. And then if it ever did get picked up, it would be really cool that, like, I wrote this book about ballroom, but secretly, unbeknownst to the world, I wrote this screenplay. You know, like, it's like, I like I like actually just, like, putting things out into the world and just being diverse and then being, like, and hoping that someone makes the connection but not needing notoriety for that, like, per se. It's the yeah. service again. I really just like I could write a, an essay of nasal navel gazing sort of like a, a book of navel gazing essays, and I'm probably going to eventually. But in the meantime, I liked I really like the idea of like just helping out, like yeah, being of 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 uh, service, useful, yeah. And I love in the in in the book you so someone asks you your occupation and you say writer and he's like no your real job and. <laughs> And I, I love this idea, like, I think all of us, a lot of us can relate to that because we'll be at any kind of a party or anywhere and be like, yeah, we're a writer. And they're like, oh, that's cute. Like, So what do you really do? And um, But I, I love the idea that in that moment, you really owned the role. And so I, I wanted to ask you, too, like, how, maybe how long did it take you to to own that title and, and that vocation of being a writer? That's a good question. I mean, I can tell you roughly what age, because I, I remember I was in a bar in Jamaica Plain in Boston um, and uh, with my friend Heidi. Someone asked us what we did. I think we were just weird and really loud. And she was like, are you guys artists? You know, and Heidi was like, <laughs> Heidi was like, no. And then I was like, mm. and then I was like notably like conflicted. And then I ended up being counseled by this random person who, who was asking me a simple question. She was like, well, you should be, you should feel okay calling yourself an artist. Like what's wrong with you? You know, like, and so from that day forward, I was just like, okay, I don't want to get into that conundrum again. Sure. I'm a writer. I'm an artist, you know, and that does for you up to sort of like know what direction you're leaning in. Um, I don't think a degree necessarily did it. I don't, I don't know what did it. I mean, maybe having a, maybe having a business card from the new school that said writer on it that I think that moment definitely did it, but I'd been yeah. inching toward it for forever, really. Yeah. I can attest to that. I, I, I cut my teeth as a sports reporter at a newspaper. And of course you're just churning out, you know, gamers and, and fe- and sometimes features laying out the paper, but I never felt like a writer until I had, uh, you know, a, an essay, uh, in in just this on this free online literary journal, and it wasn't until that moment I was like, oh, I can I feel writerly at this at this moment because I was churning out words before, but it didn't feel like writing. But that thing, that essay, felt like writing. I think it's kind of like a Chuck Close like uh, print, right? Like you like kind of like all these little like. <laughs> victories and then you pan out and then at a certain point you're like oh that's bill clinton you know like, like <laughs> it takes a minute but um i do and it's it's completely subjective to that point too because like my friend kareem who did he's here actually watching us hey kareem and he nice. um did photography for the book too he's one of the three photographers he's brilliant kareem worrell you should check him out but um he um i remember i got the book deal and i came to his house for like thanksgiving or something and i showed him the contract and he looks at me all proud and he goes fucking writer right and i was like well, what do you think <laughs> i've been doing all this time like you know like you know like what that i that's that's been the goal i've done stuff but like you know to the people around you until something sort of up front like on a billboard or like you know googleable or something or they you know then you're a writer so it's just it, it just it's a mosaic i think you start out as one and then it becomes credible every day 
Yeah, for sure. Like you just once you own it, you're you know all the auras start to row in that direction, and and then it's like yeah, the this you you sink into that role. It might feel you might feel phony at first, and that whole imposter syndrome thing. But the more you own it, and the more you live it, the more it becomes palpable and believable to the people you're telling. And then they just say, "Oh yeah, of course you are." So it's obvious now. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you you write in the in the book that uh, I I believe we're divinely rewarded for taking risks and making space for new experiences to move in. And uh, I I wonder for you, maybe you can speak to that sentiment and what it means to the book, but also the experience that you had generating material and really taking part in the book in a sense. Yeah, um, I just, you know, saying yes is like a practice, right? It's like saying yes, going with the flow, following the universe, saying yes. I've done it on many occasions. I mean, I ran away from home when I was 19 and moved to Boston. That changed my life. All of my best friends are from there. I really, I mean, you didn't hear me say this, but reading and and like sort of hiding out and doing a bunch of drugs there for 10 years was actually a a greater education than like writing school, but like whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) you know, whatever. Art can't art can't imitate life unless you have a life. That's right. That's right. And can you put a price tag on art? I don't know. Maybe it's like eight thousand dollars in, in tuition. But um, but um, yeah. To just taking a lot of risk. I went to grad school in England, and I never really lived there before. Um, well, I had as an infant, but not as an adult. So that and that was a smart move. Um, I don't know. I just think you just leave yourself open opportunities in the context of the book. You know, I took this vocology class and then all of a sudden um, I was asked to go to like, you know, ballroom events or like lectures at Union Theology about the experience of ballroom as a religious experience. Right. And like so I would just show up to things. And, you know, my mentors in the community, uh, Michael Roberson, who's a house father in several houses uh, in ballroom, and then um, Robert Simber, who's a public health advocate and just a wonderful man, part of the Vogology Collective, they just would do all these events. And I was like, how can I help? You know, and I had no idea. This was like 10 years ago. I had no idea there was going to be a book. I just was so interested, you know, and just, and they were like, well, just keep showing up then. And I did for a decade. Um, And then somebody suggested my agent wasn't my agent, just a colleague working with me um, on a project called 400 Years of Inequality. She saw me. She saw an email with me talking to uh, one of the house fathers, Michael, and she was like, do you want to write a book about ballroom? And I was just like, duh, like, obviously, like that, of course, that's why I've been hanging around for so long, you know, (laughs) but I didn't know. And because, and that was a relief too, because I've always felt a little bit like a clinger on because I don't walk balls. I, I'm a voguer, sure, you know, and I do that for myself, but I don't walk a ball. And so I'm not really, I'm not ballroom, but I'm definitely of it. Um, but which is ironically the perfect space to write a book about it because you're not so close that you can't tell the truth, you know? Um, and so, um, so it came together so organically. So I'm very much a proponent of just like, just sign up for some shit and it'll work out, you know, unless it costs money you don't have, like just go. And like, and also if it doesn't, if it does cost money, like in New York, if it means having a drink with someone you're afraid of, just go, they'll buy it for you. I swear, you know, like, Mm -hmm. You know, like just yeah, just do stuff. Say yes, it'll lead to some something. You can't always see the final product. Everything's in bits and pieces. Our perception is limited. Just go. Something might happen. Now I'm going to ask you a question you asked of so many people that you interviewed in the book, uh, which is you often preface that like I'm going to ask you the question that I've asked everyone else, which is how did you get into ballroom? How did you arrive at ballroom? 
Mm, yeah. So, uh, and JP uh, at Video Underground, I, I rented uh, Paris is Burning, and it was revelatory because I just, it was, it was like there it is. Like I didn't know what it was, but I knew that like, I knew something smelled fishy about Madonna's Vogue. I knew like, I but I love her, but you know that's complicated, and I pose it as such in the book. But I also knew that like there was toxic masculinity both in the world and in the black community and in the queer community. Right. And so, so when I saw Paris is burning, it just said to me, Oh, this is the space where obviously people are going to be themselves because you don't see this on the street, you know, but this exists. Um, but there was also like, sort of like a posed a bunch of hard questions about myself too. And like my um, internalized homophobia and like what I'm allowed to do and why I can't dance the way I want to dance, you know, yeah, that's how I found it first through ballroom. I mean, through um, Paris is Burning, but then eventually through that Vogology class, and then it just sort of exploded um, from that point on. Yeah, and, and speaking of that internalized homophobia that you write about and you just mentioned, like there's there's a part in the book, and one of the most uh, vibrant sections of the book, at least for me, was when you're describing your father and your interactions with him, and 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 there's there's that point too where he's, he, you know, he's talking to you, and he's just like, you know, if I found out my my son was you know, was gay, I, you know, I'd kill him. And you just kind of like, let that, let that hang. It's just like letting that cord hang. And we're just like hanging with that for a while. And maybe you can speak to, speak to that in that moment. And what a, you know, what a dagger that must be. And then how you have to carry that with you. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, my close friends have heard that story over and over again. And it's kind of like, you know, you tell a story like so often that you're like, okay, well this, I'll probably need to write it down if it already isn't written, you know, cause it kind of is once you tell it like five times. Right. So it was, it's always right here, but also it's traumatic. So it's always right here. Yeah. But, um, but um, when I moved to New York, my dad like showed up back in my life. He said, my mom told him that um, I, I was gay and he didn't care. He married a third wife and she was Christian. So he was cool with everything. I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I gave him a chance. I told him, you know, I make more than my mom and I'm trying to get an apartment in New York. If you really want to help out, like you never have, then you can co-sign or like be a guarantor for me. And he didn't just say no, because other people said no, and that's fine. But he said, he said, no, and I wouldn't even do this for your siblings or my own mother. And I was like, okay, well, you didn't have to tell me, like, I'm like, you didn't have to be like, no, but I'm also a dick in these other ways, you know, like as evidence. So I I was like, you know what? Exhibit A, B, and C. Right, yeah, like my, yeah, all the times I've been a dick. So this is consistent, you see? And so I was like, all right, well, just leave me alone. Like, don't, (laughs) this this was a test, you failed it, stop popping up. And also, you know, I'm going to write a book one day and you're either going to be starkly absent or just not like the way that you were represented in it because you're horrible, you know? Um, And then, I mean, and then this opportunity came and I realized that like, and I wasn't just doing it to sort of put my dad on blast because I could have gone full throttle. There's a ton of other stuff. Um, But, um, and I almost implicated my mom too, um, but she and I are are in a really good space. So I just left her kind of out of it. But what I wanted to do for that children, the children chapter is sort of not just say LGBTQ queer, uh, queer, queer kids are kicked out of their home by their biological families and ballroom fills that void right that's just a soundbite that you don't feel what that is you don't feel the actual loss of being cut off from who you are right and not even just cut off hated so so there's that I sort of wanted to make it personal I could have interviewed someone from ballroom and about that specific topic but what 
I was also concerned with is that just sort of appropriating folks' stories. Like I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to ask all these personal questions and risk nothing personally. My art criticism often implicates myself and I use first person a lot, but what I really wanted to put my story in there to actually finally get rid of that space right here in my head, but then also to, as a sort of a sacrificial kind of device so that people know I'm serious about the book and it's not just absorbing other people's tales, you know? Yeah. And I thought it was what was some of the more touching moments of the book or when you write about the, the house, uh, the house mothers and the house fathers. And, you know, you said you wrote within this culture, a quintessential act of masculinity fathering can be driven by classic femininity, femininity, mothers and black femininity in particular. And uh, I, I just I love that phrasing, and I, I was hoping that maybe you can you know just talk about that and expand on that, and how important those roles are, just in the community, especially for for unfortunate you know kids who get you know kicked out of their homes and are looking for some some degree of structure and family. Yeah, I mean the flip side of the last question, like the flip side of my dad being absent, is that ballroom. I got two gay dads out of like out of life and following sort of the ballroom sort of uh, uh, line of thought. And so I got Michael and Robert. And when I interviewed them for the book, uh, Michael Roberson, he went to Union the- Theological. So he really thinks about ballroom in this theological space, um, which I sort of put into the book as well. But my first question for him, because he's such a father figure, he's every, every, every time I interview someone, they're like, Oh, my father, right. Uh, Michael. And I'm like, well, he's mine. And like, you know, how many kids does he, this man have? Right. And so, um, so he's known for fathering, you know? And so I asked him directly, it wasn't sort of a proposition of my own. It was just like, and also you could sort of play on the line that like, you know, if everyone in ballroom is queer, then is every sort of father effeminate, which isn't really the, the, his argument, his argument is I model my fathering on the phenomenal black mothering that I've had. Right. So, um, so, you know, typical to ballroom, they, it's, he's sort of exploding sort of these uh, gender binaries, but, um, but just also just being honest and I totally see it. And if you talk to Michael or see any of the presentations that he does, cause he goes all around to colleges and New York city doing these sort of lectures um, he's only talking about black women the whole time, trans black women that started ballroom. He's showing you clips of lip syncing um, battles, which are like captivating. And then he does this whole thing about Janet Jackson at, as uh, black representing black female bodies. And um, it's so, so it's always just sort, sort of there. Fortunately, he sort of laid that out for me. Um, yeah. It was it's so important to talk to everyone in this book because I think I know. And then it's, so I think I know, but then I interview someone and they either confirm it or they, give me they sort of toss up something else you know another proposition so yeah and given the the way the book is structured and put together you know you you talk about you know a certain a major topic which then includes kind of this uh you know the, this critical deep dive that you take but you also break out an interview component and then also kind of like a, a baseball card component of of a particular I called it that. That's great. Nice. Was, actually, I called it baseball cards at first, and I was like, no, nah, they're more like Pokemon cards, but still. <laughs> That's great. So how, how did you arrive at that as a way of, you know, as a way into this book and to tell these stories of ballroom? I get so bored writing sometimes, and I'm like, if I'm bored, they're going to be bored. So, like, let's just, like, try not to be bored. So what is it? Multimedia, like, explaining multimedia sort of situations is super helpful for me. But also, I, and then the interviews were important just from a sort of um, 
um, agency standpoint for the folks that I'm writing on behalf of, they needed to be present. I'm not an anthropologist and I, I don't plan to be one anytime soon. So I needed to know how they felt. Um, the, the, uh, the Vogue icons, like the interstitials that you're talking about, I'd gotten like pretty much to like the second to last chapter or something. And I thought to myself, like, where is the, aside from the bits where I do describe being at a ball, um, like I described Kareem and taking, I described my friend Kareem, the photographer, and then, um, my nieces and nephews taking them to a ball in the Bronx that was Batman themed. Like that was really cool and fun, but and I describe that in a certain social, socio-political context in the book, but I don't, I'm like, where's the fun in here? And I keep, I kept describing it as like a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down the book. Like you're going to know, you're going to know about like the, the pitfalls of capitalism and cultural appropriation, but also it's going to be fun. And I was like, am I having enough fun here? So I thought it would be good to just explain like the love of watching someone Vogue. So I cover Hector Extravaganza, who uh, danced for Madonna back in the Vogue and um, Blonde Ambition tour days. And then um, my friend, Kia LaBeja, who went to the new school with me and took a couple of classes with me. She was the mother of the House of LaBeja at some point. Watching, She's um, a cis woman who slays Voguing. And so like, it's important to know that they exist. And also, she's just incredible. Um, so Hector, uh, uh, Leomi Maldonado from, um, Legendary, she just talking about her trajectory, Icon Pony Zion, who's a friend and taught me in Vogology how to Vogue. Um, who's the fifth one? I can't remember the fifth off the top of my head, but they love me. <laughs> it, it, at the start of the book, you, you know, you write that, uh, you know, well, once the ink dried on the book contract, Robert Sember, who's one of your one of your gay dads, uh, came to me with two mandates with which I concurred. The first was that the book be unapologetically black, to which I replied, how dare you? And no problem. The second was that it be an indictment of capitalism, a system at the root of American slavery, and the only seeable justification for the centuries of marginalization of the LGBTQ BIPOC lives that make up ball culture. You can go on a little bit more, but... That seems to be the the crux and the nexus uh, of animating force of of the book. So you know how at what point did that arrive to you? Like this is this is the this is my trampoline to dive in to this subject. I mean, before yeah, like like you said, sort of before I even I had written a sample chapter that was the first that ended up being the first chapter. So really, it's just taking you know uh, America's Best Dance Crew, Madonna's Vogue, um, Pose, Paris is Burning, and just sort of talking about what those did culturally for us. And so I had that sort of done, but then that's not a whole book, you know, like it could have been, but it's not, it wasn't going to be this whole book. So I, Robert saying those things was really helpful. They were sort of North stars, you know, like I'm, I'm anti-capitalism anyway, but like generally, I mean, even though I live within the system, but, um, and the black thing is just obvious, but the reason I said, how dare you is because Robert is South African, but a white man. And so like I said, I, I said, how dare you to his face? I was like, how dare you? you know but um but the capitalism thing was really a good guiding force because you know i mean even just sort of googling ideas while i was doing research it landed me at bell hooks um who i've met and who was a a scholar in residence at the new school um for a while so i've seen her speak and she's really cool and but it was she was helpful in terms of organizing my thoughts um so um so yeah that was a super important moment that and also it was him giving me permission to write the book because, you know, he's not, I mean, he's ballroom and Michael are ballroom and maybe I am at this point, but I just needed everyone to okay this, everyone that I cared about at least. 
And you also write, it's, it's obvious that capitalism is the devil. And if you glean nothing else from this book, please, please know I condemn it and can't wait for the day when together as a conscious society, we finally get a collective clue and dismantle the beast with our own, with our bare fucking hands. And yeah. I, so, so dramatic. What is wrong with it? <laughs> You know, you know, for a book that has very little profanity, it's 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 a nice little grace note to to have that have that dolloped on there. But maybe you can speak to you know where you know at what point did uh, you start to have that conflicting relationship with capitalism? You can even tie it to Madonna and voguing and MTV. I mean, always. I mean, I've always had it. I mean, there was a moment when I I put this in the book when my mom and her gay friend Reggie, they're both from New York, but they both ended up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and they were getting ready to go to the club or something. And like I was listening, I was sitting in the bathroom with them while they're primping and Madonna's Vogue came on. It was a new song, you know, and so they and then I think Reggie said something to the effect of like tricks because he called my mom Trixie. He's like, Trix, do you hear what this this woman is doing and my mom was like yes honey she thinks she's one of the children right so it's like you know and so that disparity between like what my mom and her friend thought about Madonna and what was like you know so so I always knew there was a conflict there but like in high school and um, all in Boston I hung out with you know sort of non-conventional punk rock kids I lived at Food Not Bombs in Alston when I was 19 and like so, you know, the artists that I've always called friends and family are always had like a, you know, their side eye on the man and capitalism and whatever. And now, you know, as someone who's an academic, I know that it is racism and slavery are America's first sin, but those were all in the name of social hierarchy and monetary gain, right? So everything just points back to it for me at this point. There's no sort of like, Maybe I can pinpoint the age-ish, like around the age that I was when I, that switch was turned on. But now you can't turn that shit off. Mm. And, and with, uh, with regarding the, you know, Madonna in, in Vogue there, you know, you, you, you ask, like, when have you crossed the line from appreciation to appropriation? And what a, what a fine line and a fine dance ar- around those ideas. So, you know, maybe, maybe with you, like, how have you, you know, what, when you're posing that question specifically to that, you know, how, how might someone go about appreciating something without appropriating it? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I was doing a podcast earlier this week and someone asked me why I don't walk balls and I gave the example, well, A, I'm a writer. Like I don't have to leave me alone. Right. But like, <laughs> but like why don't you go? What I, what I wanted to say to him was, why don't you go walk a ball? Why don't you leave me alone? And, but, um, but, um, but now, <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> you walk a ball. Yeah. You walk a ball. That's the book. No, you yeah, walk. Get out of here. Yeah. Sorry. What was the question again? I'm sorry. It just uh, the the idea of the you know towing that line of uh you know of, of appreciation versus appropriation and navigating that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think one of them is one of the rules is just sort of be thoughtful and don't take up a lot of space. I mean, when me, Kareem, and the kids went to the Bronx Ball, I, I gave everyone a speech before. I was like, okay, just because we're black and some of us queer, doesn't mean we can be all all up in everyone's face and in their way, like let's just be respectful. They all said they knew. And I was like, you don't know, just be nice. You know, so. <laughs> um, so, so there's, you know, just be respectful. Uh, so I watched this documentary recently, Pat, uh, Patricia Field, the, um, the costume designer for Sex in the City and a slew of other films and media. She um, had a house 
in, uh, in, in ball culture in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, um, called The House of Field. And there's been a documentary that came out about it recently, and I went to see it. And the thing about them, um, that particular house, is that they were m- mostly white, um, which was rare. It was like downtown folks coming uptown to Harlem Balls and stuff. So it was kind of, it's a cool idea, you know, and they did it officially. They were good. There's, just this, there's this moment in the documentary where um, they have the House of Field Ball, and all these celebrities are there because she was connected to like a Betsy Johnson and like Mark Jacobs. Mark Jake, there's a category being walked, and I cannot remember the category, but Mark Jacobs just decided that he was going to walk the category, and he just, like, walks up, and he's like, I'm doing this, and everyone's like, sit down, but you're Mark Jacobs, you know, and, like, he didn't get the rules. If it was a real ball, they would be like, you are disqualified, you know, ones across the board, right, and when they interviewed him about it afterwards, um, like, maybe, like, last year for the documentary, you could tell that like they were the question asked the person asking the question was more like what gave you the balls or the gall to do that you know and he was sort of just like I just want to have fun I just want to join in I felt inspired that's where it gets complicated you know so that's one example in terms of participation when it comes to these business ventures I think the folks lower on the hierarchy of that dynamic need to be asking themselves a lot of questions. And I think the people higher up do too, but I think my interest lies more in what ballroom folks are thinking when they sign a contract, you know, like, what are your, what are your plans? What is the agency you have currently? Will that increase with the next venture due to this one? Do, are they coming from a place that's respecting you? So like, it's, it's, it's not a clean cut sort of thing and there's always just like the propositions I make in the book like it's Madonna was good and bad could she have been better probably could she have been worse probably but it's never going to be like this was good this was bad it's just sort of like how thoughtful is everybody in this and that's what Bell Hooks talks about and I reference it in the book just being enlightened witness witnesses of what is going on being aware of these transactions and 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 the repercussions of them and when you know the name of the book, of course, is and the category is. So maybe you can, uh, you know, what are some of those some of those categories as they relate to ballroom? Yeah, so um, I talk about some of them in the book. A lot of them are covered in Paris's Burning, which is outstanding. And what that movie did was relieve, like, alleviate me of having to explain what ballroom is, which was nice. I can kind of just like hit the ground running. Um, but there's this wonderful monologue that Dorian Corey does, who I love because Dorian Corey was like a muse or like a, like a bard. Dorian Corey was like the bard, like every sort of monologue Corey gave in Paris is Burning is a poem. And like, and she talks about shade and reading and shade. And then she also talks about categories. Um, And it's just all very captivating. What's also funny about her is that when you look um, at the video of her in Paris is Burning in 1989, I think there was a mummified body in her house at that point. She, she'd murdered a man who was um, invading her home. And instead of going to the police because she was a trans drag queen, right? She was like, I'm not going to jail. They'll throw the book at me. So let me just wrap this in vinyl. I'm sewing anyway. I'll wrap this in vinyl and put it in the trunk and put it away. And um, they'll find it when I die. And they did. And the New York Magazine did a whole thing about it afterwards. Um, Anyway, and they wrote that in post too. What was my point again? I'm losing my train of thought. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about the categories, you know, you know what those are and defining those. She does a whole monologue about categories. Um, so there's realness, um, which is a category. So usually it's 
sort of talking about trans women um, looking the most sort of passable at street level, which has a whole slew of implications that I cover at the book. And some of that is out of necessity. If you read as a man on the street and you, you know, and you're a trans woman, then that can foster violent um, reaction. So it's sort of this really high stakes thing that becomes sort of a pageant thing in ballroom, um, which is super complex. So realness, but realness branches off outside of gender and into like really weird categories or interesting categories like executive realness. So, um, you know, who is the most convincing executive? So you got your briefcase, you got your tie, you got your, your jacket, you know, you're, you're, you know, hailing a cab, like that kind of thing. Um, voguing is one, it's probably the most popular one. So just in there, but there are subcategories of voguing. So there's Vogue Femme, which is sort of the most um, prominent category. And then there's, you know, Butch Queen Femme. There's all kinds of like sub uh, divisions of, of uh, voguing as well. Um, Bizarre, Lee Soldier, who I interviewed for the book, does Bizarre. And really it's just sort of like the craziest outfits you've ever seen in your life. Um, and just like pieces of artwork. Um, he does like bubble themes sometimes. He, it's just, it's, it's, it's great. And he's like sort of the Lee Bowery of ballroom, but not as notable, I think, because, you know, of race dynamics, but he's, he's an icon for sure. Nice. And looking on your Instagram, there's a, an incredible photograph uh, from your friend Kareem uh, here from the Arkham Ball. And I, I this image is is gorgeous and just illustrative of the entire event in the scene you know maybe you can just you know speak to uh i think i think we might be running a little low on time um but we can uh speak to the his his artwork here to help illustrate what what is such a you know vibrantly it's such a visible thing to experience um sort of talking back to those punk rock roots like cream i met him when i was 19 we lived in a horrible house or a beautiful house but uh filled with horrible boys including ourselves in dorchester but he documented the whole thing and so like he's been taking pictures of our friends on the scene for like decades um and so when i thought about who i wanted to take pictures he was top of mind so he came with me to the arkham ball that particular ball was so much fun and it was just such a good idea to, for me to bring my niece and nephew who are from um, charlotte up to see it because their i mean their mouths were one of them his jaw dropped because of toxic masculinity but i think he'll get over that like i think it's one of those things where he was like his mind was blown and he was offended and then i think 20 years from now he'll be like that was really cool he took me there you know that one was really fun because the everybody was dressed as like poison ivy and like two-face and like the joker there was like five jokers there and so Mm -hmm. um and it was was, and then there was someone from the times taking pictures too so while kareem was photographing everything there was like two satellites like around there was just a cool vibe there and i think he captured it beautifully like you really see like the energy. And I think that particular picture you're talking about is like with someone doing a dip and then everyone's hands are kind of down, like, like sort yeah. of like, yeah, yeah. You can, it's kinetic, and but it's static. Right. Yeah. Nice. Well, well, Ricky, the, the book's incredible and it definitely took me to a place that I hadn't really even heard about. And that's what some of the best works of nonfiction do is they take us places and, and, and show us what it is to learn about these incredibly vibrant subcultures. So I just, I got to commend you on the book, uh, continued success. And I can't wait to hear what you come up with and read what you come up with next, man. Thank uh, Thanks so much for the work. And of course, carving out the time to talk shop here. Hey, thanks, Brendan. And thanks for reading the book. I, I really appreciate it.
How about that? Thanks to Ricky for the time and for Goucher College inviting me to be part of the nonfiction sessions. Also, thanks to West Virginia Wesleyan College's MFA in Creative Writing for the sponsorship support. You have a good time? The show is partly made possible by the incredible cohort of members, growing cohort, mind you, at patreon.com slash cnfpod. Building up the Patreon coffers grants you access to transcripts, the magazine, coaching. It helps pay for podcast hosting, which is not cheap. And it keeps the backlog from never expiring. And your dollars also go into the pockets of writers. So, like I said, visit patreon.com slash cnfpod if you want to up your patronage, up your support of the show beyond merely listening to it, which is also incredibly awesome. Hey, speaking of listening to the podcast, for the little guy, reviews make the world go around. And if you can spare a moment and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a kind review of the show, I'll read it on the air. They mean everything to the wayward CNFer. I have no name recognition, but if people see more and more reviews, they have to take notice, and they might even join our little community, and then they might become patrons, and I can pay writers more and more of that fat burrito money. Everybody wants that. You want the guac. You don't want to skimp on the guac when you go to your favorite burrito joint. I was listening to WTF with Mark Marin as an appointment listening for me. I listen to it all, all every time, every Monday and Thursday. And he's always talking about getting out to the clubs and, and working out the jokes. And also, in, in a, an email exchange I had with Chip Scanlon, who's a great writing coach and has a nifty newsletter, um, he asked me, among other things, how my writing is going. I couldn't even answer the question, nice as he was to ask, because my writing as of yet is, like, non-existent. I, I'm a comedian who doesn't go out to the clubs. It's a sad state of affairs, Jerry. Every week I have high hopes of getting back into the swing, and then I get bogged down by, by reading and getting this shit show together. Come the weekend, I'm wrung out. On top of that, I do, you know, all the, you know, cooking, and of course I have to exercise and maintain this sexy bod you've come to know. Uh, and then, so come the weekend, I have almost no bandwidth to do anything except watch Bob Ross and uh, maybe some Bake Off or football. Uh, but also a squid game, finish that. Uh, pretty twisted, right? But then, and then Sunday comes and you start to feel the crush of the oncoming week and all you want to do is sleep when the alarm goes off in the morning and you're like, God damn it, here we go again. Point being, I got to get out into the clubs and feel that energy doing the work. I've been a chicken shit about a phone call I need to make and I just got to get on that phone, make that cold call. Tamp down that anxiety, and it might lead to something promising. Probably not, but it could. Anyway, I can't even say that I'm a writer these days with a straight face anymore, and that makes me kind of sad. But here we are, CNFers. Here we are. Do me one solid. Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.